And because both cars were made by GM, were both cars available in metallic mint green paint? They were. Thank you, Ms. Vito. No more questions. Thank you very, very much. You've been a lovely, lovely witness. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are reflecting on the past year's term at the Supreme Court. It's been a year of big wins for the right, with the court rejecting President Biden's student loan forgiveness program and creating a new legal way to discriminate against LGBTQ people. But the spotlight has also been on the court in a way it hasn't been before, with reporters turning up unethical and illegal activities by the justices. Meanwhile, Congress has shown little to no appetite for restraining the court, meaning this podcast will continue to have a reason to exist at least into the next term. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have tanked our nation's brand like Elon Musk tanking Twitter's when he (laughs) turned it into (laughs) X.com. When he turned it into something else. I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hey, hello. And Michael. Hey, everybody. Did you see that the logo is literally just like a basic publicly available font? Yeah. Incredible. Genius. This is genius at work. It's like the Papyrus SNL skit, but like for real. Right, right. Right. The things that he thinks are cool are things that teenage boys think are cool. And it's like, that's it. Right. Like the letter X. Like, you know, he designs cars that look like the dumbest shit ever. Like, Cybertruck. Right. Yeah. Like when I was in fourth grade, I would try to like design cars and like say yeah. with my friends, right? You just like draw the dumbest fucking thing that looked right. like yeah. a rocket ship. And you, I was like, Phew, yes, <laughs> this is sick. And that's what yeah. Elon's doing, except right. he has enough money to make it a reality. And yeah. actual teenage boys are looking at it like that is cool. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, we're back. Yes. We're back after a short break. And we're going to take this opportunity to reflect on the term, Mm -hmm. reflect on what is going on at the Supreme Court. We've done a few cases from this term already. We will do a few more in the future. Yeah. But for now, we want to talk big picture. You know, what sort of themes are we seeing? How did this term make us feel? Mm. (laughs) Let's hop on the therapist couch and... (laughs) Get it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to kick things off with a rant that probably fits better at the end of an episode, but. But go off. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So the legal media is in a constant cycle of trying to characterize and recharacterize the Supreme Court based on whatever has happened most recently. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, the court had a slightly more moderated term. The narrative was that they were divided 333 between liberal, moderate, and conservative blocks. Mm-hmm. And the next year we had Dobbs and Bruin. And suddenly the narrative was a uh, conservative court. Roberts has lost control. Yeah. And this is the output of a media apparatus that lacks object permanence. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's sort of continuing now. You see the same pitter patter. The legal media is trying to extrapolate from what happened this term to pull out some overarching narrative about what's happening at the court. Yeah. The conservative bloc didn't get everything they wanted on voting rights. They hedged in some cases, mm-hmm. but they limited environmental regulations. They struck down affirmative action, struck down student loan forgiveness, damaged LGBT rights. So how far to the right are they? Right. Mm-hmm. Are Kavanaugh and Barrett moderating? Is John Roberts in control? <laughs> mm-hmm. My response to all of this is calm the fuck down. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you do not need to overthink the state of the Supreme Court. Right. The court is who we thought they were. Yes. It is an extremely right wing institution, far to the right of the other branches of government at present. We don't know exactly where Kavanaugh and Barrett's priorities lie, but they're somewhere on the spectrum between Alito's firebrand conservatism and Roberts's more institutional brand, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You might find it interesting to try to pin them down more precisely, but it's not going to matter that much at the end of the day. The difference between Roberts and Alito is not a substantive one in 95% of cases. They primarily disagree about tactics. Right. Right. Alito wants to take big, 
lurching steps toward conservative goals, and Roberts wants to take smaller, more measured steps toward conservative goals. Mm -hmm. When we launched this podcast a few years ago, it was an actual 5-4 court, and we focused a lot on the Roberts two-step, the strategy that he employs of taking one small jurisprudential step and then another one later, which makes the whole operation look a little more measured, a little more judgy. Yeah. And he still is trying to do that. Oh, yeah. He is still trying to convince the conservatives that that is the best approach. But they are arguing about tactics in almost every case, not about substantive outcome. Mm. That's not to say that there's you know no difference between Roberts and Alito or anything like that. But if you allow yourself to get bogged down in those differences and become obsessed with those differences, you are losing the plot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Like the practice or the act of like trying to pull out a theme, a jurisprudential theme at least, right? Like was this term about race? Was this term about the administrative state? Was this term about corporations? You know, was this term about the court moderating itself on voting rights? I don't think that's like really informative or, or, or really useful a description to me because I think the trend or like the takeaway from the term should be more holistic. First, we should be looking at for sure the past few years, not just this term, right? Mm -hmm. And what we have is the court doing the court, right? Absolutely. This term was about a court with a 6-3 conservative supermajority doing what this institution does. Historically, it has been undemocratic, limiting of civil rights, and activist in selective ways. So we are going to talk about a theme of this term and the past few years, actually, of the court arrogating power to itself. But I think another theme broadly for me from the last term is judicial activism right? This is happening across jurisprudential areas, right? It's happening in the cases on race, in the cases on voting rights, in the cases on other civil rights, in the cases on the administrative state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because of the supermajority and how quickly they have been able to manufacture massive conservative legal wins, right? So we did an episode on Sackett. That is the case about what waterways the EPA can regulate about clean water. Peter talked in that episode about what an accurate definition of judicial activism might be. Judicial activism maybe like in its most simplest form could be defined as like the court going beyond what it's actually asked to do in a ruling, right? Mm -hmm. You have that happening all over this term. In Sackett, the court could have decided that the Sackett's property was not on a protected waterway, but instead they changed the definition of what counts as a protected waterway entirely for the whole country, right? Mm -hmm. When the court is using these doctrines like the major questions doctrine, in this term that was in the student loan case where they said that the court was not going to defer to the Department of Education in interpreting those laws that apply to them, but instead because this question of student loans is just so important, it means the Supreme Court has to step in, right? When the court is creating extremely subjective rules for how to decide cases, that is judicial activism, right? Mm -hmm. I think another point about judicial activism from this term is that you see it not just in substantive legal questions, which happened in tons of cases, but in procedural questions as well, right? So, like, look at standing. Who can file a lawsuit because they themselves have been harmed? You have in 303 Creative an absolutely nonsensical standing decision saying that this woman who might one day make wedding websites and might one day on those hypothetical wedding websites hypothetically write a paragraph about the couple's hypothetical love story that she can bring a claim about her supposed First Amendment rights. You have in the student loan case standing being conferred on the state of Missouri, which would have suffered absolutely no harm as a result of Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, right? There are a thousand million other examples, but that's the trend or the big takeaway from this term that I've observed for me. This is an incredibly activist court. They are going beyond what they are asked to do in any of these cases, right? Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is judicial activism. I think when you're in law school, especially, we are stuck in old conceptions of the term judicial activism because 
for decades, that has been the label that has been put on behavior by liberal judges, right? Yeah. Just because they are acting or deciding cases in a liberal way. Pretty much anything that you intuitively think is good. Right. Smacked with the label judicial activism. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I think this term is an incredibly solid example of conservative judicial activism. It really ties in with the court's sort of assumption of power, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also, you know, I'm not someone who thinks of judicial activism as inherently a problem. Right. But I do think that what makes the conservative form unique is that they have, A, started answering questions they're not being asked, mm -hmm. which I do think starts to border on shit I don't think courts should be doing. Mm -hmm. Right. And B... They are doing this almost exclusively in service of conservative political interests, right? Right. Mm -hmm. If you right. look at the activism of the Warren court era, and I think there was something that you might be able to point to and call judicial activism in that era under some definitions. A lot of what they did gets characterized as just sort of liberal judicial activism, which doesn't quite capture exactly what was happening. Because in almost every instance, what they were doing was prioritizing individual rights. Yes. And in the process, they did a lot of unpopular things that weren't Democratic Party objectives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And I think that that gap between, for example, the Warren court coming down on school prayer or coming down against obscenity laws, right? Or segregation, right. which back then, Southern Democrats, Dixiecrats were big segregationists. Yeah. Right. In some ways, these were liberal political goals, but they were not partisan objectives at all. No. no. They were in service of higher ideals and ideals that center around individual rights. And I think that's the substantive gap between the Warren court and the Roberts court on this shit. Right. Yeah. And just sort of continuing on this thought, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with judicial activism either. It's, you know, I think all three branches of government should clearly state their values and act on those values and act on their constitutional vision. I just think judicial activism combined with what academically is called judicial supremacy is a problem. When the other two branches defer to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is being extremely activist, then it takes on a very different character, mm -hmm. right? If the Supreme Court does something and the other branches don't like it and they respond, then that is like healthy democratic governance where the people remain having a say in the matter, right? Through right. our elected representatives. But when the Supreme Court just does whatever the fuck it wants and the other branches are like, oh, it's the court. Right. They shrug their shoulders. Well, then we're no longer really a democracy. Now we are ruled by nine unelected life tenured freaks. Right. It completely changes the character of American government in a very bad way. We are in like the worst possible combination of institutional designs here. Right. I want to drill down on this idea that the court has sort of arrogated power, that it has taken power away from the other branches of government, away from the people, mm -hmm. and brought it unto itself. Uh, you can see it in a lot of areas. Maybe the most obvious is in administrative law with the development of the major questions doctrine over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. We talked about this in the student loan case episode, but the rule used to be that sometimes Congress will pass laws delegating power to an administrative agency, which is, of course, controlled by the executive branch, and the court would defer to how the agencies interpreted that power. The whole point being that the court was staying out of a dialogue between the legislative and executive branches. Right. Right. But the Roberts Court has done away with that deference, saying that they will closely scrutinize those delegations of power by Congress and strike them down if they don't think they're proper just directly inserting themselves into that dialogue between the other branches of government and lording over it. Right. Declaring themselves the final arbiters, right? Mm -hmm. The output of that is cases like the student loan case, where not only is the court declaring itself the mediator of the other two branches' relationship, but they strike down one of the key pillars of Joe Biden's election platform, 
Right. right. Simultaneously dismissing the will of Congress, the executive, and the voting public. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, the court has always been in a slightly awkward place in our government, sort of simultaneously situated within our constitutional system and also established as the arbiter of what the Constitution means. That sort of inherent tension is the result of Marbury v. Madison, right? There's no, mm-hmm. right. We're a couple hundred years past solving that problem. But what the Roberts Court has decided is that the court's proper place is functionally atop the constitutional system, right? Yeah. yeah. Ruling over the constitutional system, sort of making itself more than just like a backstop, which I think is the sort of proper function of the court in our constitutional system, but as an active presence, moving pieces around the board at all times, slapping back the executive when they feel like it, slapping back Congress when they feel like it, Mm -hmm. telling these branches what they can and cannot do, and doing so in a way that pretty blatantly aligns with partisan objectives. Like, is there a single person who thinks that if Trump had tried student loan forgiveness, that it would have been struck down by this court? Right. No. How much of a sucker would you have to be to believe that they would have done that. Yeah. We talked about during the episode that Trump had paused the student loan program and those pauses were costing the government, what, $5 billion a month? Yeah, something like that. For many, many months. It came out to almost $200 billion total for the program. Right. Right. And it wasn't questioned, right? Yeah. There wasn't even a challenge. Yeah. It wasn't something that was even floated because that wouldn't have served any particular partisan objectives. And so you have this sort of confluence of the court serving distinctly partisan interests while also accruing massive amounts of power that they suck out of the other branches of government. I think that's right. Yeah. You know, Roberts famously sort of compared himself in the role of judges as to that of like an umpire calling balls and strikes. Mm -hmm. But if you've ever watched a sporting event where you felt like the referee thought they were in charge. Yeah, he's fucking uh, Joey Crawford. Joey Crawford, exactly. So that's, that's who exactly he is. who I was thinking of. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, does this ref think that he's the fucking star and he gets to decide who wins and loses because of like who he likes and doesn't like? That's sort of a, a better approximation right. of the role the court has appointed themselves, not just between the two branches, but above them. Yeah. There is a professor at Georgetown, Josh Chaffetz, who has done a lot of work on this. And he's written a few pieces, but there was one that came out this year called The New Judicial Power Grab that sort of predates the end of the term, but I think was really prescient for the end of the term. It goes into a lot of what Peter was saying, especially on the major questions doctrine. He looks at like three areas of law, election law, congressional oversight, and administrative law. And he looks at both the substance of opinions And I thought this was really interesting, like the language the opinions use and the way they describe like Congress in the executive branch versus how they describe courts and judging. And when you see them next to each other, it is pretty remarkable. Yikes. So I I think it's worth just like quoting from these judicial opinions. And one of them, Antonin Scalia says, the first instinct of power is the retention of power. And, you know, in our system that requires elections, that is best achieved by the suppression of election time speech. Hmm. Anthony Kennedy says uh, government officials will use their authority, influence and power to threaten corporations to support the government's policies. And Roberts says campaign finance laws attempt to tamper with the right of citizens to choose who shall govern them. Their whole gist is. Congress is so power hungry and corrupt that they can't be trusted to craft regulation of elections and campaign finance and speech. Congress people are so corrupt that we must let the free flow of money directly from massive (laughs) donors into their pockets. That's right. That's right. But when they're talking about regulations of judicial elections of elected officials at the state level, of course, it's very different. Judges, of course, those elections have their own regulations, which have come before the court. And in so one case, for example, Anthony Kennedy wrote about the judicial process in the context of 
upholding some stringent regulations of uh, campaign finance in judicial elections. And what he said about judges is that precedent and stare decisis and the text and purpose of the law and the constitution, logic and scholarship and experience and common sense and fairness and disinterest and neutrality are among the factors at work mm. when judges operate to bring coherence to the process and to seek respect for the resulting judgment. Judges often explain the reasons for their conclusions and rulings. Yes. Yeah reason, it's logic, it's precedent, it's all above the gross process of electoral government. Right. The beautiful, righteous judge right. and the debased, <laughs> the disgusting politician. Power-hungry politician, yes. <laughs> These guys have such disdain for the elected branches of government. Yeah. Like, yeah. undisguised, they're fucking gross Neanderthals. <laughs> corrupt gross Neanderthals. And I thought it was really interesting because Chaffetz reframed Citizens United, which is infamously the case where the court you know, held that corporations are people and have speech rights, and those speech rights include the right to give unlimited money in political campaigns. Right. Well, adjacent to political <laughs> campaigns. Right, to independent expenditure committees <laughs> that are advocating <laughs> for political campaigns. <laughs> but not coordinating with the candidates themselves. I'm like a C-SPAN caller keeping you honest. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But when we discussed this way back in our very second episode, we framed it as very pro-corporate decision, which I think is right. But Chaffetz sort of frames it as a pro-judicial and anti-elected branch opinion mm -hmm. where they are sort of denigrating Congress and the role Congress has in their money grubbing fundraising ways compared to when they allow much more stringent regulation of judicial elections at the state level, right. which they absolutely do. And then describe the judiciary as having to engage in reason and logic and being above reproach and above the suspicion of corruption, rich language when you consider the ethics stuff that's been coming out this year. Mm -hmm. But if you think of Citizens United like that, as like, yeah, let people buy politicians. Who cares? They're all a bunch of fucking corrupt jackasses, essentially, uh, and we don't respect them. That one of the like liberal wins this this year, I think, makes a lot of sense. Which is Moore v. Harper, which was the independent state legislature case where the state legislatures, the elected legislature, was trying to cut the state courts out of the process of interpreting state election law, right? And lo and behold, the Roberts Court, to the rescue, found that there is an integral place in this process for state courts because they respect courts, they respect judges, but they think that the whole judicial system is above the political system, impartial right. and reasoned, right. right? Exactly. But it's also worth noting that within that decision, they place themselves atop the state courts. Exactly. Right. But giving themselves the final say, right? The Supreme yeah. Court still retains final word. So in this liberal win, you have this same pattern of arrogating power to the judicial branch in general and to the Supreme Court in specific. Mm -hmm. And so like Peter and Reese said, I'm wary of drawing themes from any case or even any one term. But I think the sort of last few years and the Roberts court in general, the centering of power in the Supreme Court and the denigrating of elected branches is like very consistent. Right. That's what has been consistent, right? This attitude of judicial supremacy, this kind of structural supremacy, the consolidation of power in the institution, right? Yeah. I think if you're focused on the themes too much or just pulling out one theme, right, I think that really bogs us down in our analysis. Right. The same with getting bogged down in analyzing the differences between the individual conservative justices. You know, Peter, you talked up top about, you know, the difference between Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Alito ideologically is barely there, right? The difference really is in tactics, right? How do we approach this? Do we do this short term? Do we do it immediate? Do we do this more long term? Michael, you brought up an interesting point, something you had read that goes to kind of this like tactical approach. 
yes, there are jurisprudential differences between the individual conservative justices. Of course there are, right? But again, it's about getting bogged down in that versus a viewpoint, a perspective on the institution, that consolidation of power, and where the different justices feel they stand within that on a tactical, strategic approach, right? So, Michael, you brought up this analysis that you saw that was about Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. You know, they're the two newest justices. They're the two newest additions to the conservative supermajority. And you said that what you read kind of pointed out that maybe they were kind of rookies in the last couple of years, And Alito and Thomas kind of took advantage of them and their lack of experience in Dobbs, especially like that's a good example, right? That Alito and Thomas's approach, we're going to do this now. Yes, it's a sweeping change in the law, but it reaches our ideological goals right now versus maybe something that was more of an institutional incremental approach from Roberts. And so Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett might have sort of been swept up in the approach of Alito and Thomas. But then after Dobbs, they see the public reaction to Dobbs. They see approval ratings for the Supreme Court absolutely fucking tanking. And since they've seen that, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett might be more alert to these tactics, these strategies over time. And they might be more open to Robert's sort of institutional approach. But again, going back to the ideology, the political goals of the conservative legal movement, these differences are not reassuring, right? Absolutely. Right. And I just think it's worth asking yourself, okay, do you feel good about the future of the Supreme Court right now? Do you feel like after seeing 303 Creative where they blew a hole in civil rights laws and LGBT rights protections and ended affirmative action and killed student loans, do you feel like the Supreme Court is like moderating and on your side and going to be okay from here on out? Right. Because if you're a normal fucking human being and you are scared by this shit, then it's cold comfort that Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett are now aligned with Roberts rather than Thomas and Alito. Right. Like, where the fuck does that get us? Nowhere. Right. Exactly. If it's even true, right? Right. right. Again, we're talking about- you end like up talking about a sample size of like eight cases. Right. 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 It's too noisy. Mm-hmm. You can't extrapolate anything clear from this shit. To the extent that that analysis is correct, that Kavanaugh and Barrett have seen the wisdom of institutionalism to some degree, mm-hmm. they have taken a small step to the left They are still so far to the right of you, our paying listener, that you can't fucking see them. So don't worry about it. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Exactly. We're not in a situation where we're about to, like, over the course of a couple years, pull Amy Coney Barrett to the center to make her an Anthony Kennedy figure or some shit like that. That's not going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. It brings me back to to what we were saying at the beginning of the episode, which is that like just pulling out some sort of jurisprudential theme is it's too noisy, like you said, Peter. And I think the sample size point that you made is, is really important, too. First of all, it's an incredibly small sample size. We are talking about several cases, Mm -hmm, right? right. Like maybe a dozen. We're not talking about more than that. And then trying to like glean from that where nine people are in this massive institution that has so much power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the sample size, though, that point is important. And nobody talks about when they're trying to draw out themes from the term. Nobody talks about that (laughs) the already small sample size we're looking at are a group of cases that the Justices themselves have decided to take, yeah. to have decided to hear, have decided to adjudicate. Right. Yeah. And so it's not like a neutral case study of like, here are the organically developed cases from all over the country on all of these different issues that the justices looked at in any sort of objective process, right? The justices themselves choose them. I think it was Mitch McConnell who said recently yes. in defense of the court They take the cases as they come. No, they don't. That is not the case, actually. Right. Not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. If they didn't want to decide 303 creative, they could have not. They would have declined it. Right. Right. And it's such an important point because you end up having people treat it like you can just scoreboard this shit. Well, the liberals want a couple. And like, no, the median case coming to this court 
right now is insane. Yeah. Is so far right. Yeah. These theories being brought before the court would not have been brought five years ago, would not have been even thought of 10 years ago. They are ludicrous theories of yeah. law being yeah. entertained by the justices publicly. And right. that in and of itself is a massive story, right? And are not losing 9 0. Exactly. Right. Not right. even close to losing 9 0. Right. right. And when you just try to like look at the cases in a vacuum, you are completely missing that. Exactly. Completely missing that they are choosing the game that they play. Yeah. Yeah. And the only really substantively interesting case for me this year was the Voting Rights Act case, Milligan. Right. This was a case where uh, Trump judges in Alabama said that Alabama was in violation of like black letter Supreme Court law on the Voting Rights Act and needed to increase the number of quote unquote majority minority districts in the state from one to two. Right. There are seven districts in Alabama. Only one was a majority black district, even though almost one in three people in Alabama is black. Right. Right. And so the district court, Trump judges said, under the laws that exist, this needs to be two. Right. Two representatives, legitimately. And the court stayed that ruling, put it on hold, and let an election take place under the extant maps, which led everyone to believe that they were going to make some big changes to existing Supreme Court law right. and further weaken the Voting Rights Act, which they've already significantly weakened. And then at the end of the day, they reinstated the district court's order and left everything pretty much as is. And I think this is the biggest tell that at least a few conservatives got a little scared by the election results of last November. And we're like, maybe we're going a little too far too fast. Maybe we are sparking a little too much electoral outrage and creating the grounds for democratic resistance to us, both small D and large D democratic resistance to us. And so maybe we should take our foot off the pedal. But you know what? The Voting Rights Act is still in shambles, still in badly need of updating something Democrats failed to do. Mm -hmm. They failed to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. They failed to pass H.R. 1, the big voting law that was separate from the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And now Republicans control one of the houses. And so there's no chance that that'll happen in the next couple of years either. And so, yeah, they said, OK, maybe we'll slow down in this one case. That's interesting. Maybe. Right. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe they're just enjoying their position of victory. Right. Right. <laughs> and are like letting the Democrats have an extra seat because who gives a shit? Right. Yeah. I mean, frankly, if John Roberts went through the five or six most controversial cases of this term and thought, where can I give the Dems an aesthetic win with the least impact? This might be exactly what he did. Right. 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 We're talking about one representative. He might have looked at Milligan and said, I'll give him that. In one. a house of like over 400 representatives, we're talking about one. Right. right. When the president and leaders in both houses of Congress with the Democrats have no interest in challenging the court's power. Right. So what do they even care if there's another Democratic trifecta? Right. They're not scared. They're not scared of Joe Biden and Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer. Like, right. what are we talking about here? Right. And even with that, we're going to talk later about what the state of Alabama did in response. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about ethics. Yeah. Because one of the big themes of this term wasn't really happening within the term in the technical sense at all. It was the scandals mm -hmm. that our friends on the court have found themselves embroiled in after several decades. How do I put this? Living lives of unmitigated corruption. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I follow. A couple of journalists <laughs> said, hey, I don't know if anyone knows about this, but various Supreme Court justices are just like hanging out with billionaires who are deeply involved in Republican politics and receiving gifts and not telling anybody about it. And that has become maybe 
the single biggest story of the year on the court. Yeah, yeah. We should kind of recap, I think, like what has happened in terms of the corruption scandals. We did a special episode about the Clarence Thomas allegations specifically. But I think since then, there have been more allegations, more evidence of of different kinds of corruption Mm -hmm. for Clarence Thomas. Also been some stuff about Alito. Also been some stuff about Gorsuch. And most recently, a little controversy for Justice Sotomayor as well. So retire, Sonia. (laughs) Get off the bench. (laughs) So starting with Thomas, in our episode, we talked about how this billionaire Harlan Crow, who happens to be a Nazi memorabilia collector, is taking this man, Thomas, on luxury vacations all over the world. Luxury vacations, putting it lightly, you know, I feel like you could argue I've been on a luxury vacation. $500,000 super yacht cruises is a different thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You need a different word. I don't know what the word is, but it can't be just luxury. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Beyond the $500,000 vacation, Crow bought property from Clarence Thomas. He currently owns the house that Thomas's mom lives in. Hmm. Crow paid for Clarence Thomas's grandnephew to attend an elite private school. This is in addition to Crow being on the board of an organization that helped to fund Ginny Thomas's pack and pay her six-figure salary. This is all while Harlan Crow, the billionaire, has business interests, legal questions going up in front of the court. Mm-hmm. Moving on to Sam Alito. Justice Alito got a luxury fishing vacation to Alaska that included a ride on a private jet, all funded by billionaire Paul Singer who also had business before the court at the time. Mm -hmm. The whole trip was organized by, who else? Leonard Leo, of course, former Mm -hmm. head of the Federalist Society, forever monster. When ProPublica, the news outlet that reported on all of these corruption allegations, Thomas and Alito, when ProPublica reached out to Alito for comment before running their story about this luxury fishing vacation, Alito went to his buddies at the Wall Street Journal and wrote an op-ed titled, ProPublica misleads its readers. <laughs> this is more like an angry blog post. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's inane. Yeah. It's crazy that an editor let that headline fly before ProPublica published anything. Yeah. All right. That's a really good point. ProPublica had not run the story yet. Right. So in this op-ed, Alito says that he filled out financial disclosure forms. And the instructions on those forms say that hospitality doesn't have to be disclosed, and that hospitality includes use of someone's facilities. And then he gives a bunch of definitions of the word facilities Mm -hmm. to make it seem like a private jet is a facility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A gesture of hospitality that he doesn't have to disclose. This is the substance of this op-ed, right? right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The definition of facility. He does not try to argue that Being taken fishing is a facility. No, no, no. No. But it would have to be for him to be correct (laughs) about whether he needed to disclose this. Right. And also, he was literally talking about, like, instructions at the top of the form. He's not talking about the actual fucking law that requires (laughs) justices to disclose gifts, right? Yeah. Really good stuff. Anyways, they're all getting paid. They're all getting their toes sucked by billionaires. It's really <laughs> fucking cool. Justice Gorsuch, moving on. Number three. In 20- <laughs> Their toes sucked by billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Gorsuch. <laughs> Just after he was confirmed to the Supreme Court in 2017, Gorsuch sold a property that he owned in Colorado to none other than the chief executive of a massive law firm, Greenberg Traurig. He sold that property for $1.825 million. Now, Gorsuch was only part owner of that property, so he maybe actually made like half a million dollars at the most off of this sale, and he did disclose that, the amount that he made off of the sale Mm -hmm. of the property. He did disclose that on his financial disclosure forms, except he did not disclose the identity of the purchaser. Mm -hmm. That was left blank. Isn't that interesting? That's weird. And then one other thing that's really also interesting about this, (laughs) Gorsuch had been trying to sell that property for two years, and it was nine days after he was confirmed to the Supreme Court, Mm. that this guy gets his offer. That was a crazy week for Neil. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Honey, you'll never believe it. Everything's coming up, Neil. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so that's what those three shitheads have been up to. Sotomayor. Now, Sotomayor has also caught a little controversy when it was revealed recently, just a couple weeks ago, I think. So colleges and libraries book Sotomayor to come and speak, right? All of the justices speak at all kinds of places all the time. Mm -hmm. But it was revealed that when colleges and libraries have booked Sotomayor to come speak in the past, Supreme Court staffers, it turns out, have often encouraged or kind of pushed many of these institutions, some of them public institutions, to buy her memoir or Mm -hmm. other books that she's written Mm -hmm. before she comes and speaks. You know, and it's not just like, here, buy a copy. This is hundreds or even thousands of copies of her books. Now, total, she's made almost $4 million off of her books since 2009. This is not just these institutions buying the books. By the way, I've perused her memoir and I don't think she deserves $4 million for it. I'm just going to say that. Mid. (laughs) I was going to remind our listeners that all three of your hosts own copies of Sotomayor's memoir. None of us bought them. We all received them as gifts. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say that grand total pages read between the three of us was zero. But apparently... Peter has since... I'd say 50 between the three well, of us. Well, after we had this discussion on the podcast, I was like, all right, I feel kind of like an asshole for <laughs> having a Supreme Court podcast and never reading it. And then I sort of like skimmed through the chapters and stuff. Mm. Like you can see what they're about. And I'm sorry, but it's it's not interesting. It's just not. Mm. We still love you, Sonia. Yeah. You're cool, but this is beyond the pale and you need to step down. $4 million. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's made almost $4 million total off of her books since 2009. But like, I think important to note here, like congressional and executive branch ethics rules say, of course, that government officials can't use government resources, meaning government staff. Right. Right. For personal financial gain. No, you're supposed right? to be receiving money directly from powerful <laughs> interests. That's right. That's right. She's such a sucker. You don't just yeah. get your staffers to hawk your right. book. <laughs> right. No, you yeah. go on a half million dollar vacation for That's eight right. days. That's right. it. Yeah. yeah. But this is a legitimate scandal, I think. Like, no, it is. Oh, I think so. She's yeah. using public, Tax she's using taxpayer funded, funded aids yeah. to push her book. Of course it is. Right. To encourage right. oftentimes taxpayer funded universities to yes. use their money to purchase their books. So this is like yeah. right. taxpayer money coming in and going out, right? Like yeah. both yeah. ways. Double jeopardy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I've made jokes like, you know, step down and Joe Biden replace her with like a 35-year-old <laughs> or whatever. With Rhiannon Hammond. <laughs> it would be the end of our podcast, but it would be worth it. But no, it's true. <laughs> Sotomayor's little scandal is lacking the sort of like cooperation with political interests, it's it's a different kind of corruption. Right? Absolutely. But there's no world where this is ethical. Right. Absolutely not. Right. It's a problem. You're abusing a position of authority and public trust to enrich yourself. Right. That is worth more than a little slap on the wrist, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the appropriate punishment is for her to retire. Yeah. And be replaced by uh, Rhiannon. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There's not going to be any more massive largesse. Yeah. There isn't going to be any more luxury vacations as a benefit. No, I'm not doing that job. What's the point? Yeah. You will get to surpass Brett Kavanaugh as having the most contentious confirmation hearing of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I don't even want to think about it. Things on the Internet. I've always thought about because people like you should be a federal judge to all of us. Yeah. And I always have this image in my mind of some senator just playing clips right like the greatest hits of five to four while i'm like in a suit stone face like right uh we were a satirical uh podcast and (laughs) (laughs) sir when i was screaming fuck the pigs over and over again it's on site (laughs) i was a young boy of 35 at the time i said that Yeah. Look, the revelations about the justices, Thomas and Alito especially, have led to calls for ethics reform, including a proposed Senate bill that would create binding ethics rules. And that's all well and good. We do need clearer and more comprehensive ethics rules for justices. But what we really need 
is the institutional appetite to actually enforce those rules. Like Re mentioned, it's basically undeniable that Clarence Thomas violated the law. Yes. Mm-hmm. He failed to disclose various gifts from Harlan Crow in violation of the 1978 Ethics in Government Act. Yep. Has there been any effort to hold him accountable under that law, civilly, criminally? Not even a little bit. Nope. Nope. Not even a subpoena. Nothing. So the problem is not simply the lack of rules. It is the lack of an institutional apparatus willing and able to enforce those rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a much bigger problem because you can pass the fucking ethics rules package, but what's going to happen when there's another revelation? What's going to happen when it turns out Ginny Thomas killed someone on January 6th and (laughs) Clarence Thomas tried to cover it up? (laughs) What are you going to do? I mean, if there is no one willing to actually step in from another branch of government and hold them accountable, then this is all aesthetics. This is all optics and it's all fucking bullshit. Mm -hmm. So we do need more rules, but the problem is not the lack of rules. The problem is the lack of enforcement. Yeah. I also think even a really stringent and powerful ethics reform, which is not really on offer, is misunderstanding this sort of political moment and public outcry. Like the Senate Judiciary had a hearing in response to public disclosure of a lot of these allegations about Clarence Thomas in like 2012 or some early teens Obama administration time. And Breyer and Scalia came and spoke to the Senate Judiciary Committee and everybody was super chummy and nobody cared. The public didn't care. The committee didn't care. Democrats didn't care for the most part. I don't want to speak for Senator Whitehouse, who's been angry about this stuff as long as I can remember. But like, why is this mattering now is an important question to ask. And the answer is because people are unhappy with the Supreme Court. They don't believe it's engaged in impartial, nonpartisan reasoning, right? Exactly. They think that it is just as bad as Congress and the executive branch engaged in partisan hackery upending the constitutional order as the public knows it. And they don't like it. They don't like the direction they're taking the country in. And in that state, people are more receptive to hearing stories about how the justices are corrupt. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And are more outraged by stories that the justices are corrupt. To borrow a phrase from Gen Z, it hits different. It hits different that Clarence Thomas goes on $500,000 vacations when he's also taking $20,000 out of your pocket in the student loan case, Mm -hmm. right? Right. It's just a little different. Yeah. So responding to this political moment with simply ethics reform and nothing else is completely misunderstanding the public mood, public sentiment, your responsibilities as sworn in members of the federal government, sworn to uphold the constitution, Blah, blah, blah. They're fucking losers and cowards. Like, they are. Right. You're touching on something else that's important here, which is like, okay, Clarence Thomas violated these disclosure rules. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get tunnel vision there. Right. And say, okay, well, he violated the disclosure rules. He should be punished. What are our options? What Mm -hmm. rules might there be in the future? But take a step back. Why are there disclosure rules? Right. There are disclosure rules so the public can have vision into what these fucking scumbags might be doing. Right. Right. The kind of interest they might be hobnobbing with. And serving. Right. The kind of people who might be willing to spend millions of dollars to coddle a Supreme Court justice, to send a message to other justices, to other judges around the country that if you do right by us, this is what life will be like. Right. Mm -hmm. The public understands that that's corruption, that that is like the heart of of corruption. That is what corruption looks like. Yeah. So Clarence Thomas hides it from the public for that reason, because he knows what it looks like. The public finds out through reporting. So the question isn't just, what are we going to do to slap him on the wrist because he didn't disclose? Right. The question that needs to be asked is, what are we going to do now that we know that he is a corrupt individual? Right. right. Now that we know that these institutions and people are dripping money and gifts fucking all over him Mm -hmm. and his family, that he is intertwined with this political 
moneyed apparatus to the point where they are inseparable. Right. What are we going to do about that? Right. That is a separate question from what are we going to do about his violation of disclosure rules? Exactly. Yeah. And I think to the point of all of this just being aesthetic, all of this really not having much substantive value in terms of moving towards actual accountability and the idea that we've been talking about throughout this episode, that the Supreme Court is arrogating all of this power to itself. Mm -hmm. You see all three of these things in Chief Justice John Roberts' letter that he sent to Senator Durbin, yeah. right? <laughs> After Senator Durbin asked Roberts to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, right? This was about the need for new ethics rules for the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice Roberts responded with a one-page letter declining the invitation, LOL, LMAO. He's like, no, I'm not coming to that. <laughs> and he says that a chief justice testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee is an exceedingly rare occurrence. Okay. There would have to be some once-in-a-generation corruption yeah. scandal going on for this to <laughs> yeah. be appropriate. It seems like there would need to be a major fucking concern. Yeah. And he says that chief justices testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, that is a really rare occurrence because there are concerns about separation of powers and judicial independence that would be called into question if he testified in front of the Senate. Here's the thing. The other side of separation of powers is checks and balances, mm -hmm. right? Like Congress checks and balances the court, you stupid bitch. And also <laughs> ethics rules for members of government don't have fuck all to do with separation of powers, right? Yeah. Like this is outside the scope of you deciding a case about what the EPA can do, right? We are talking about outside of the courtroom can you fucking take $500,000 vacations from a billionaire, right. right? Who has business before the court. That doesn't have anything to do with the separation of powers that is in the power of Congress to do. We're talking about checks and balances. Shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. But anyways, this letter like really shows just exactly what we've been saying, that John Roberts, as an institutionalist, sees the institution of the Supreme Court as outside the constitutional order, right? right. Mm -hmm. Above the constitutional right. order. Exactly. Outside and above the constitutional structure of the federal government. Right. To the point where he feels like the institution does not owe Congress or the people any explanation. Not yeah. a damn thing. When there's yep. clear evidence of misconduct and corruption. Yeah. Yep. I want to add one last thing, sort of circling back to what I was saying, if you think I was being too harsh on democratic leadership. None of our listeners were thinking that, but go ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just in case that Josh Chaffetz article I mentioned earlier, it talks about congressional oversight. And something that I like knew, but seeing it detailed like one after another was just so bracing was the degree to which courts in general and the Supreme Court in specific had slow walked congressional oversight for the last 15 years of Bush, of Obama and of Trump to the point where congressional subpoenas were essentially moot, where the cases never mattered by the time they decided them, where Congress's efforts at oversight, their subpoenas were worthless. It's honestly shocking to see like laid out just like one after another. And to live through that, to be a congressman, to be in leadership, to see your efforts at your constitutional duty of oversight thwarted over and over and over and over by courts. Right. And for your response to be what the Democratic Party's response has been is like some of the most loser shit in fucking history. This is mm -hmm. Neville Chamberlain, Washington generals getting clowned on by the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> levels of loser energy. Uh, just unbelievable. At what point in time are you like, well, actually, we want to do our job. Right. We don't want six Republicans telling us how to do our job. We just want to do our job. Mm -hmm. What a bunch of fucking losers, man. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked about whether the court is moderating or not. We've talked about the accrual of power by the court. We've talked about ethics. 
And now it's time for the miscellaneous section of our episode. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, we're taking you through the outline. Random neurons firing off (laughs) about what I feel like I learned from this term, right? Mm -hmm. What information do we have now that we didn't before? Besides the fact that Clarence Thomas is receiving literally millions of dollars from billionaires. I often talk about how conservatism is about in-groups and out-groups, good boys, bad boys. And one thing you can see from the court's decisions is where those divisions lie, right? Who the court cares about and who it doesn't. And every term sort of crystallizes those lines, those divisions further. When they forbid affirmative action on behalf of white applicants, when they strike down student loan forgiveness that primarily benefits young people, when they whittle down environmental regulations on behalf of industry, Mm -hmm. when they create a constitutional right to discriminate against LGBT people on behalf of some talentless bigot, Mm -hmm. right? right? All of this helps paint a picture of who they believe to be society's rightful heirs. Mm -hmm. And every year that picture gets clearer. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be my substantive takeaway from this term, if there is one. Yeah. My big takeaway was thinking about 303 Creative, which is the website case, was that in a healthy functioning democracy, you would expect the three branches of government to sort of be in conversation with one another, right? Three co-equal branches sort of hashing out the rules of the road and the shape of the law. And instead, what we see, as we've discussed at length in this episode, is the court sort of positioning itself above the other two branches, letting them have conversations among themselves, but mediating or sometimes ending those conversations and you know, coming to its own conclusion and saying, we're the final word. And so it's worth asking who they are in conversation with. Is it anybody? Yeah. And I think the answer is the rest of the conservative legal movement. And so 303 Creative leaves a lot of questions open about what sort of commercial activity is expressive and what sort of viewpoints are capable of being protected by the First Amendment in the commercial speech context. And it feels a lot like the court just throwing this to the Federalist Society, to the district court judges, the Fifth Circuit, and saying, you guys go wild. You have fun. Yeah. You decide. Let them bring the cases. Let's figure it out. Spend the next few years hashing this out. Exactly. Is this going to be a narrow rule? Is this going to be a huge loophole in civil rights laws? Yep. Mm -hmm. Law professors, write your articles. Right. Everybody, jump in on it. That is who the Supreme Court is in conversation with. That annoying fucking conservative law professor on Twitter that you hate. (laughs) Some well-financed billionaire sock puppet like Leonard Leo. All these shitty organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom. That is who they're in conversation with. The actual federal government, they're their bitches. They've made Congress and the president their bitches and they're happy with that. Yeah. And that is pretty fucking discouraging, I got to say. Yeah. And this conversation between the court and the conservative legal movement, don't miss that it's happening in the cases, right? The case about the Indian Child Welfare Act, this term, Brackeen, Mm -hmm. you know, the case itself did not strike down ICWA, which is what a lot of people feared. That's good. But in a concurrence, right, Brett Kavanaugh writes separately to say, yeah, I mean, maybe not striking down ICWA on this legal argument, but I think, he's basically saying, I think ICWA is unconstitutional on 14th Amendment grounds, right? On equal protection grounds. So just observing, right, what they are signaling to the base, the conservative legal movement, Mm -hmm. the base of their project, where these six conservatives are the culmination of this project, right? What they're signaling with what they say in cases, with how they rule, with what justices write separately to say what about their tiny substantive differences of opinion, right? The conversation is constantly ongoing. Yeah, it's government of the federal society, by the federal society, and for the federal society. Right. So help us, God. 
<laughs> you were, I feel like you were thinking of someone besides God. Yeah, I was like, should I go with Allah? I thought about it. I considered it. I'm an atheist, so it doesn't even matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> One final point about the consequences, the, you know, what happens after a Supreme Court case is decided. We've been talking this whole episode about the court consolidating power in itself. It is above the other two branches of the government in its own conception of itself as an institution and how Democrats have responded by, frankly, cowering in place, Mm -hmm. right? Not doing anything. But there's an important difference between how Democrats and Republicans react to Supreme Court cases that they don't like. And so we should talk about Allen v. Milligan. We mentioned it earlier in the episode. We've talked about this case actually in other prior episodes. It used to be called Merrill v. Milligan when it went to the Supreme Court this term. It was Allen v. Milligan. This case was about whether Alabama's voting map had violated the Voting Rights Act, because again, they drew that map where only one congressional voting district out of seven in Alabama had a majority black population that's disproportionate to the population of black voters in Alabama, right? So the Supreme Court, in one of these cases where people are saying, is some example of the court moderating itself. They said that this did violate the Voting Rights Act, like Michael said, and Alabama needed to draw a new map, right, that gave black voters more proportionate allocation of voting power, which, of course, great. That's a welcome decision. Yeah, we take our victories where we can get them and celebrate them. Exactly. Yeah. It means something to John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, who joined the liberal justices in this opinion. But How did Alabama react? What did Republicans in Alabama do Mm. when the Supreme Court ordered this? They said, how about y'all fuck off with that shit? Yeah. So they redrew their map, but they very much did not create a second black majority district. Instead, there is still only one majority black district in the redrawn map. And in the second one, they redrew it so that the percentage of black voters just went up from 31% of that district to 40%, which, if you know some math, is not a majority. Not a majority. No. (laughs) You might think, well, 40% is a lot, but one of the things about Alabama, one of the things that the Voting Rights Act looks at is racially polarized voting. And let me tell you how white people in Alabama vote. Right. And it is not with black people. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Ever on anything. (laughs) So this is a prime, incredible example of how Republicans and Democrats treat the Supreme Court differently. Mm -hmm. Republicans didn't get the decision, the result they wanted in Allen v. Milligan. So they said, fuck off. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter to us what you said. We do not care what the Supreme Court says if we don't want to do that, right? If it doesn't reach our policy goals, if it's not the racist voting map that we want, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's not surprising that they act like this, but it is astonishing when you compare it to how Democrats act, right? If the Supreme Court punches a Democrat in the face, they say, whoa, well struck, sir. (laughs) You have quite the right hook. I have never. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, more literally, you know, you could see a reasonable world where Republicans, conservatives look at the Supreme Court term and they think, all right, we got like 10 out of 12 of the controversial cases. Right. That's a massive win. Yeah. On to the next one. We're going to keep racking them up. Right. Mm -hmm. But because they have secured a supermajority, they feel entitled to victory at the Supreme Court. Mm. There is nothing stronger than conservative entitlement. That is why the conservative political movement operates off of grievance, right? Any friction in their lives is objectionable to them. And so what they see when they get 10 out of 12 is a loss Mm -hmm. because what they feel like they deserve is 12 out of 12, right? Exactly. On the other hand, when a otherwise largely conservative court gave liberals a right to gay marriage in 2015 liberals were ready to fucking appoint anthony kennedy as a saint yeah yes thank you sirs for giving us the right to marry right Mm -hmm. the gap between how liberals and conservatives handle the court is 
massive. Mm -hmm. And part of what's so interesting is that as conservatives have sort of tightened their grip around the court, their expectations of it have gone up and they believe that, you know, for example, John Roberts is a traitor, (laughs) a a man that's been delivering their movement wins effectively for 15 years. Yeah. They loathe. They believe that he is a failure. They believe that Brett Kavanaugh is a failure. Yeah. Right. You already have conservative presidential candidates promising that they won't deliver another fraud like Brett Kavanaugh or even Neil Gorsuch because of Bostock (laughs) County and his vote with gay rights and his votes on tribal rights cases. This is a movement that will not stop until the court is consumed. Right. In a lot of ways, this feels like the final form of the conservative court, right? How could they tighten their grip any further? But I promise you, they are planning to do exactly that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, good vent sesh. Mm. (laughs) Next week, just me and Michael. Boys episode. That's right. Topics so scandalous. A lady's ears <laughs> could not be exposed to Heracides <laughs> v. Shaughnessy, a case from 1952 about deporting communists. That's right. Yeah. That's the actual reason we can't be there, because uh, <laughs> under this case, she would be deported. That's right. <laughs> All right, follow us at 54pod. You can go to our website, 54pod.com, for things like transcripts and merch and stuff like that. Yeah. If you didn't see our C SPAN appearance, mm. go check it out. It rocked. Yeah, we, uh, we were on C SPAN and we blew them away. Yeah. I think the host said on television that we were the smartest, sharpest, and most attractive guests she had ever encountered. <laughs> The host texted me afterwards to say that I was cool. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thanks, Mimi. (laughs) Thanks for supporting us, and uh, we'll see you next week. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. And our researcher is Jonathan DeBruin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations. You know what? We should do more of you, Harper. We should. I'm tired of people saying it's a good case. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck this. We're doing it. (laughs) That's right.